Uh, when I was in school, I had a teacher that used to love taking and taking those little colloquial phrases and then unpacking them and showing how they came to be. So for instance, the phrase mad as a hatter. Have you ever heard that? Mad as a hatter? Uh, mad as a hatter came about because a, long t- well, a ways ago, hatters used to use mercury salts. And they would take mercury salts and they would take rabbit uh, pelts or f- fur and they would rub the mercury salts into that rabbit fur and make felt for hats. And of course they didn't understand that their bodies would absorb the mercury and so over time they would become increasingly mad. And so culturally uh, it came about that people would say mad as a hatter because hatters all tended to be a little off the rocker. Um, that's the phrase mad as a hatter. The interesting thing about what we can do with truths or pieces of information like that is after a while what gives rise to them is lost and we, we have left just simply uh, the top layer of what we see on the surface. Does that make sense? So we don't think of what happened to give rise to this or what was really going on that was making hatters mad. We just are left with a phrase that's functional for us. Hatters are mad uh, so I can, I can tell someone they're as mad as a hatter and that's really all we get. It's interesting this morning because we're starting a series called The Problem of Truth. And as a Christian, you might be like, wait a second. We're supposed to be all about truth. How can you use the phrase, the problem of truth? Well, the problem of truth isn't about truth. <laughs> the problem is, is of truth is that it is so much deeper and more expansive than what we take it to be. And what we begin to find is that truth operates beneath the surface as well as on the surface. And that we tend to, as Christians or as people in general, take just the surface and lose sight of what's going on beneath the surface. What we lose sight of is causality. Causality. So this week's word, the problem of truth, and if you want to put a word after it, it's causality. Last, uh, next week it begins with an I. I was trying to remember it this morning, and all I kept coming up with was inception, but it's not inception, but it, it's like inception. I just can't remember what next week's word is. But the word for today is causality. That was like Maybe a subtle attempt of me to plant a seed of an idea three layers deep, if you saw the movie. Um, anyways, today's word is causality. So there's things that give rise to the things on the surface. And, and when, we, when we say the things over time, we begin to strip it of the causality. So when we're at the beach and we say the tide is rising, we usually think of that just functionally. Tide is rising, so we better um, move our blankets backwards. So we don't get wet. But we don't think of the moon, and we don't think of gravitational effects, and we don't think of uh, the rising and falling of the tide and how that's happening. We just take the top layer and then respond to that. Does that make sense? Truth, though, is, is much more complex, and it's, it's a whole set of things that goes on. It's billiard balls. It's, it's all this other stuff. And we have to begin to wrestle with that if we really want to understand, I think, the Christian faith as Jesus put forward. If you want, go ahead and turn with me. We're going to look in Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 7, we kind of begin a journey here that hopefully will make, make it all come together and make sense. But Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 
Jesus begins to hit at this. And this is the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says this. Matthew 7, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. On the outside, the surface, they're true. But when you go deeper and look at the inside, it's not true. On the inside, they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And then it goes on to say this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, matter-of-factly, in some sense dispassionately, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's a fascinating passage, isn't it? This is a famous passage. It's on the back end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is saying, look, um, he had just gotten done saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you're really going to have no part in me. And he's beginning to play at some of these deeper aspects of truth. And he says, what's on the surface is not always as it appears. And so there are people, there are religious leaders, there are people that say they care about truth. Okay, they talk about truth all the time. Truth is their 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 buzzword. Okay, on the on the face of it, this is how it presents. But the reality is, when you go deeper, not only do they not know me, but in a sense, they're evildoers, and it's not true and it's not authentic. And he says, "Those people, I don't know, and they're not going to have any place with me." And you need to watch out for those. And here's the telltale sign. Here's how you can spot them. Okay, I literally just had a joke that would have, 30 of you would have left the church. Um, I'm really sensitive to that because I talked about immigration this summer and about 20 people left the church. So these days I'm all like wigged out, like I can't make a Baptist joke or anything. Um, but, uh, but so he's saying, look, I said it anyways, I didn't mean it that way. Um, like I said, Sid walks on water, and, and I used to work at that church, so don't take that wrong. But Jesus is saying, look, there's a, a type of legalism or there's a type of surface righteousness that if you scratch beneath the surface, it's not what I'm looking for. And I want you to, to watch out. And here's how you watch out. Okay? You look for fruit. The surface thing is going to be connected to something deeper. The deeper thing is in a cause relationship with the visible thing. Let me, let me say that again. Okay? We see the surface. That's connected to something deeper. That deeper thing, whether good or bad, is going to be in a cause relationship with the surface thing. So Jesus is saying, look for the kinds of fruit that would come, that would be caused by 
a deeper reality, a deeper seed that is alive, that is from me, that is with me, that is of me. Does that make sense? So he's saying, look for a certain kind of fruit, and that fruit is not going to be people going around using truth as a buzzword. That fruit is going to look a lot more like Christ. It's going to look a lot more like people who promote goodness, who build up, who, who create a, a, a more just, shalom-based word, peace, uh, peaceful world. And, and they love others and they sacrifice others. And so all of Jesus' love commandments kind of come back to this. He's saying, look, there's a kind of fruit that, that it smells right. And, and, and it's loving and it's all these kinds of things. And if that's happening, it can't come from a bad place. Okay, self-love does not give rise to this kind of goodness. Only self-sacrifice gives rise to this kind of goodness. Yet pride or arrogance or hypocrisy or legalism or um, people going around putting heavy loads, Jesus uses that phrase of the Pharisees, they, they keep making religion harder and more oppressive and, and punishing people in some sense and just weighing everyone down. And this, okay, kind of a pride that, that puffs up the leader, that, that keeps everybody down and weighed down, there's no life-giving grace. This kind of fruit cannot come from Dying to self and committing yourself wholeheartedly to, to, to God, to following God, to being of the things of God. Those two things don't go together either. So there's a cause relationship between the right kind of heart, living in faith and trusting God and being overwhelmed by grace and how that gives rise to what's on the surface. And so Jesus says we got to look for that. We, I mean... If there's any one thing we got to, I want us to grab hold of this morning is, is to realize that the temptation as Christians is to pick a flower and expect it to, to still live on the surface. And we can't disconnect truths from, from where they anchor in. So if you'll turn with me, we'll look at this a little deeper. Matthew 18, flip a couple pages over. We can't disconnect our doctrine. We can't disconnect our theology from what it is anchored in. Okay, Any more than you can pick a flower and expect it to still live and not wilt. Matthew 18, it says this, uh, verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and he asks about how many times he should forgive somebody. And Jesus tells this parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, verse 23, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That's pretty, it's pretty harsh. It's dire. Like, you can't pay it. I'm going to actually take you, turn you into a commodity, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to satisfy the debt. The servant fell on his knees before the king and he said, be patient with me. He begged and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt and let him go. Basically set him free. And Jesus', Jesus parables 
are directly tied into his mission, why he came, what his whole calling was to talk about, to teach about, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so notice how this whole idea of a man's very life is what is owed, and his very life is what's given back to him. It's, it's the picture of grace. Verse 28, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, like ridiculously less in terms of scale. And he, gra- <laughs> and he grabbed him and he began to choke him. He said, pay back what you owe me. You know, it would be silly if I brought Brandon out here and said, okay, let me illustrate this and started choking Brandon just kind of, you know, for illustration's sake. But the illustration that really lo- this really looks like is when Christians go out and find a sinner and, and literally choke them and try to punish them and try to berate them and try to stigmatize them and try to label them. And, and we literally... The body language. Anyways. He says, pay back what you owe me. And this servant fell to his knees. And he begged this man, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But this man refused. Instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened... They were greatly distressed and went out and told their master everything that had happened. And when the master called the servant, called this guy back in, he said, You're a wicked servant. I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Jesus now says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. If there is not the right kind of seed here that will give rise to, that will have a causal relationship with what you do on the outside, what you do when you come into contact with and have interactions with your brothers and sisters out here to where the grace that you receive here, because our debts are forgiven, causes you to be filled with grace because grace begets grace and you're overwhelmed by the forgiveness of your sins, of how you've been accepted and loved unconditionally, that you walk out and in that joy, it's like Ebenezer Scrooge, you're giving away turkeys like on Christmas Day because you're overwhelmed and now that's where your, your relationships are at. If you don't understand grace, if you think it's owed to you or you don't really care about grace or whatever, then you walk out and you're still all about yourself. Then when you come into interaction with somebody else and there's a way for you to get leverage over that person, you're going to take it. And Jesus says, God will take that kind of person and be done with them. It's just like what he said in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? It doesn't matter what jersey this person is wearing. It doesn't matter if they have the right Christian bracelet or listen to the right Christian radio station. What Jesus is getting at when he's, when he's looking for things is truth. He's looking for a heart that is rightly related to God that therefore causes fruit 
that puts us in a right relationship with this world and with our fellow man. We, again, pick the flower and try to just take the top layer and we say truth and we walk around and say truth and we put the bracelets on and we say truth and we put the right radio station on and we say truth and it's a lot like the things we buy on vacation at those silly knick-knack stores that when we come home just go in the, the nightstand. I mean, I've, I've had a nightstand my whole life and there's more junk in my nightstand drawers than you could possibly imagine because there is no causal relationship from that stuff to anything in my life. The, the nightstand is the causal vacuum. It is a black hole of causality. Those things have no bearing whatsoever on your life. There's no billiard balls banging around. And when we take truth to be propositional truth, that if I give a cent that God exists or that the Bible is true, or that homosexuals are bad, then I'm true. And that means I'm good, and now I can strut my stuff out in society, and shoot from the hip, and tell you all where you belong. And that'll be fun. And if we take propositional truth like that, and snip it off, and cut it off, and pluck it out from what it's connected to or ought to be connected to, we will end up like the Pharisees. Pharisees cared more about truth, supposedly, than anybody did. Yet Jesus looked at the broken people and said, those are the people I want to be with because they're much more acquainted with what's really going on beneath the surface. Their weakness, their need, their dependency, their lostness, their depression, their confusion, their worry, And they are receptive to what I've got to give them. Okay, so I want to take a time out and and put another parable of Jesus' on this. Matthew chapter 4, or Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks about four soils. And he talks about these four soils, and the four soils are different states of your heart. And the, the seed that is being planted is the message, it's, it's symbolic for the message that Jesus is bringing. And it talks about rocky soil, it doesn't want it at all. And he talks about soil where the birds come and take it away. And then he talks about soil where it's shallow and it, and it has a pretension of, of being a certain thing, but the reality is other cares and concerns, um, and we're familiar with this one, I think so intimately familiar with this one, we're trying to live, or we, 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 we really kind of want to live a spiritual life, but the reality is, is that so small in comparison to our, our fears or our desires or the lusts of our heart or whatever, and those other things just kill it, just stamp it out. Like we were in the Ochoco's last week, and we lit a fire where we shouldn't, and it's like, like the fire's spreading, you know? And there's fire where there's not supposed to be fire, and then, you, you know, you stamp it out, it's like that little fire on the edges, um, it, it doesn't stand a chance when I'm stamping it out. And if that's all that's going on with Jesus' message of grace, of forgiveness, of love, um, if, if that fire is so small and we're letting all the other things just stomp on it, it's not going to survive. And then the fourth one is the soil, like Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are basically the, the, 
the folks in the margin that are rough. Blessed are them. Why? Because, man, their heart, their soil is just rich. They're desperate. They're hungry. They're thirsting. I mean, there's an appetite for what God's going to give and what Jesus is doing, and they want it. And that fire or, or that seed and what it grows is so strong, nothing else, nothing else can choke it out. So Jesus says, um, that's the soil, the good soil. And then tying right in with all those other analogies, that, see the causal relationship there, of what's really going on in your heart, gives rise to fruit, which is that seed grows and produces a crop. Um, the Pharisees just had the surface, and Jesus said, man, there's something so dangerous about them, because after a while, they get so used to taking truth as mental assent to a set of propositions or doctrinal statements and disconnecting it from what's really going on here, that not only are they dangerous because they're going to end up abusing people, like kids with guns without having gun safety, okay? It's always my analogy because the day I proposed to Tamara, we were in the Ochicos and she grew up in Prineville. And it was a bad day for me because you're proposing and you want to look like a stud. And we went out and we were shooting shotguns and I was like, what? And like the whole, the whole family just, you know, was diving everywhere and thought I was an idiot and a city slicker and all this. And then literally a half hour later, I was supposed to propose. I did propose. Um, you know, so I, I don't know, I still remember that. But truth in the hands of a Pharisee is a dangerous thing. Not only because they're going to hurt people, but also because they're going to lead people astray. Because we are impressionable people. And we tend to follow people in authority or, or people with influence or leaders. And Jesus is like, man, watch out for them. Look for the fruit. Understand what's really going on. And you will know them by their fruit. Because at the core, the soil, grace, gives rise, has a causal relationship with this other stuff. So Jesus says... When I forgive your debts, there's a necessary relationship to how you walk out as to whether you really understood that. So I want to take it down one notch real quick and, and really, I mean, put the thinking caps on here. We sell Christianity pretty cheap. Just pray this prayer and you'll be a Christian. No questions asked. It's like immunity. Um, we'll just, just grant it to you. All you got to do is sign right here. And then we have this real conundrum of saying, how does the fruit tie into Christian fruit? What it, what it really should look like to be Christ. Like, how does that tie into the fact that all these people are running around now with the label Christian? And, the, and then we, we scratch our heads and we go, well, if we tell them they're supposed to be bearing fruit, it sounds like we're telling them they have to bear fruit to be saved, which sounds like it's not really Christ that saves us, it's our works that save us. I mean, bear with, if you're newer, like, if, if you're newer to church, this might be a tall order, okay? But what really saves you as a Christian? Is it what Jesus did on the cross, dying for your sins, grace? Or is it you going and being a really perfect person, like in the Old Testament, where there's all these rules? And so we're kind of like, well, we're not supposed to be telling people to do all these things, but they're not doing all these things. And they really should be. Like, the fruit's not there. So what, 
What do we do? It's really awkward. And what it shows or what it surfaces is that our view of truth that we're going around talking about is detached from what's beneath the surface. We're going around saying Matt is a hatter, but not understanding what gave rise to that. We're going around saying Christian without understanding what Christian means. The soil and the seeds and the heart. So there really is no tension between grace and works. If grace really takes hold, it, fill in the blank, works. So we shouldn't have to go around telling people work what we should do, and this was what the, the reformers were really good at, what the Puritans were really good at, what we should do is just put a box around this and preach the gospel over and over and over again. We who are sinful, who are bent, who don't naturally get it right, who are in need of a Savior, who are in need of grace, um, are offered complete, complete grace complete forgiveness, overwhelming grace. If, if we would understand what that grace is and receive that and say, I'll take that and nothing else, please. And when we preach the gospel and we, we explain to people what grace really is and that it takes, that, that we needy people, remember, poor in spirit, are yet loved while we were yet sinners. We were loved and, and Christ died for us and he gave himself that we can basically be heirs of the kingdom, that we can be called sons of God, that we can have everlasting life, that we can be forgiven, that we can have a share in his righteousness. So it's like not being able to play basketball um, and all of a sudden you're like made an honorary team with Michael Jordan and the Bulls. You know, it's like you have no ability to get there, but all of a sudden Jesus pulls you on the team. It's, It's overwhelming. It costs everything else that's going to burn someday, that can't last, you know, the whole thing. You can't take a trailer, you know, back up a trailer to your, your, your gravesite. You can't take it with you. Everything else in your life is kind of insignificant, and it costs you everything else to say, I'll die to self, and, and I'll, I'll take this. If you look for your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it. And, and it's basically saying, I have room to carry this, and I'm going to let go of everything else. I'm going to be baptized into the name of Christ, which literally means I'm being born again. I'm like, I'm like, it's symbolic. It's like I'm dying to this other way of doing things, and I'm being raised to this new way where it's not about me. This is where humility comes in. Not about me. I'm going to follow God. God's going to exalt me if he wants to. All I'm doing is clinging onto God. I'm following Christ. I'm putting Christ at the center. Every day, God, what do you want me to do? How do I most glorify you? Show me the weaknesses. Show me where I need to grow. Show me how I can go and bear fruit in this world. Show me how I can know you more. Um, That is the gospel. That gospel, Bonhoeffer used the phrase, costly grace. That that costly grace, when we make it the, the dominant fire in our hearts, is in a causal relationship with what's gonna happen on this side. It works. Grace begets grace. Jesus said so. What should have happened when this guy was forgiven, received grace, is that it naturally should have begot forgiveness, grace. Grace begets grace. So there's no tension between grace and works. The tension is between really getting grace and merely talking about grace. 
the, the reality with truth, here's the problem of truth, is that we tend to want to pluck it out and use it as a tool. Let's debate this. What do you think about this? What's your stance on this? What's on your political rap sheet? And we take two stars or three stars or a constellation and laser into that and think that is what truth is, missing all 360 degrees of the sky or the atmosphere. You see, because truth is correspo- has a correspondence relationship with reality. Reality and truth are two halves of a whole. Does that make sense? Reality is, and truth is whatever meshes with reality becomes true. And so me taking two or three data points and going out and fighting the liberals and thinking that that's truth, if I get too obsessed with that, will allow me to become a Pharisee and not realize that truth is atmospheric And the real issue with truth is not that person and choking them, but my harmonizing with the atmosphere, with reality, which takes an awful lot of shaping. The Bible talks about us as being clay. Um, And sometimes I think the spiritual life feels like that, doesn't it? And I've got so much business over here to figure out how to become a fit with reality. That to choke other people is kind of like silly. Like, hey, you want to join me? Maybe we can hang out while we're both trying to fix ourselves or understand truth or understand reality. I had a professor, Jerry Root, who used to say there's two kinds of people in this world. Those who are goofy and know it and those who are goofy and don't know it and they're dangerous. And then he added a third category later. He says... And then um, those who are goofy and don't know it, but think they are, and that's the Pharisee, and that's really bad. But the idea is we're all a little bent. We're all a caricature like Disneyland. We all, if we sit down and look at reality, are going to have big ears or a big chin or a big nose. And if we don't think we have any business to do and we go out and start trying to collect debts, there's a disconnect at a truth level, no matter how much we talk about truth. There's a disconnect in our understanding, our self-awareness about whether we harmonize with reality or not. If we understand, if we have humility, and we understand that we're goofy, man, that we don't look like a human's supposed to look. We got big ears, big nose, big chin. We're a caricature of what we were created to be. If we recognize that, then we go, man, it's a good thing God loves me anyways. And I got a lot of work to do. And wow, um, you got a big nose. But that's okay. I got big ears. Let's, let's work on this together. And we can have grace for each other because you know what? God has grace for both of us in this. And it changes everything. The problem with truth is not that truth is a problem. The problem with truth is that it is so much deeper and broader than what we want it to be or sometimes we're comfortable with it being. We have to go beneath the surface and really get at the causality of things if we really want to understand the truth that Jesus talks about. So here's a really cool picture. For a long time, I had trouble trying to really understand what does it mean when Jesus says in John 14, 6, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. I mean, truth is a set of propositions, right? It's a set of statements or doctrinal things or, or whatever. And, and by the way, doctrinal statements aren't bad, okay? It's, it's a slice of truth. But, you know, my thought was, man, propositions, these sayings, these are true. Like, Jesus is saying, like, I am the way, the truth. Like, man, what is, how, how do I wrap my mind around that? Jesus is the truth. This whole deeper understanding of truth that involves causality really brings that into harmony for me. Because Jesus is the embodiment of what it looks like to fit with reality. Jesus is true. But because Jesus is not only true, but he's relational, he's a person, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to interface with him and understand reality, understand truth in a relational capacity. It's a, I mean, it, the fact that Jesus embodies truth is a beautiful, almost poetic thing that God does. How do we contort ourselves to some inanimate, like, puzzle system that doesn't, like, work with us? I mean, how do we do that? Well, we don't have to. Um, Jesus embodies truth, and he's got grace for us, and he's saying, look, as you interact with me, I am going to help renew you and grow you up and turn you into the right kind of thing that is related to reality in the right kind of way, and therefore will bear the right kind of fruit. John 15, I'm the vine. And if you are connected to me as a branch with the vine, there will be life force in you. There will be some kind of organic connection with you that will over time change and bring about a reality in you that fits reality with a capital R. I am truth. I am the truth. And my relationship with you will help shape you so that you become true. Do you know what the word authenticity means? Authentic comes from the Greek. The heart of it is genuine. Why do we all walk around with this little radar detector for what's really authentic? Is that pastor authentic? Is that Christian authentic? Is that church authentic? Is that group of people authentic? That guy that wants to burn a Quran, he doesn't seem authentic. You know what I mean? Like, we, we might not talk about it, but we're always kind of gritting things out with this idea of authenticity, but we think it's more our own little pet project. We don't know that it really has anything to do with Christianity, but the reality is, is that, that thing we've always been acquainted with, that little hunt, that little grid, that little filter for authenticity, is so directly related to what Christianity actually is or ought to be. It's the filter by which we tell if something is genuine, if this fruit matches this fruit, if it passes the smell test, you know what I mean? It smells right. So John fourteen six, I am the way, come to me. I am the truth. Take it all in, digest it. I'm the truth uh, and I am the life. As you do this, man, it's gonna bear this fruit. So Jesus embodies truth. He corresponds to reality and it's a heck of a lot easier, thank God, to interact with Christ and allow him to, to change, influence, affect, shape us 
than to be left in a cold universe where we have to contort ourselves on our own effort into some kind of a pattern. That's grace. Grace works. Grace changes us. Grace produces truth in us. Grace makes us authentic, genuine. And the problem of truth is that sometimes we get lackadaisical and just take the surface. When what's really going on beneath the surface is everything. Luke 7, if you'll turn there real quick. Luke 7 is a fascinating passage where Jesus gets invited in by one of these Pharisees that has reduced truth down to these little data points. And he's sitting there with this guy who's questioning Jesus and a woman walks in, a sinner, messy, a messy woman. And everyone knows it. I mean, it's messy enough that she's got a reputation. She walks in and she brings perfume in, in verse 38 of chapter 7. She stood behind him and at his feet weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she was this woman is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair after she's cried on his feet and she's kissing his feet and she's perfuming his feet and she's saying, I am so broken in this, this. I mean, get the imagery here. I am so needy. I'm so broken. I'm so desirous. I have that fourth kind of soil in my heart. If you'll just give me grace, man, that grace will find a home here. I got, I got no pride. And when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, if this man were a prophet, if this man knew truth, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman this is. She is a sinner. She's got big ears. She's a caricature. She's goofy. She's not the way it's supposed to be like me. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he goes on. He says, two men owed a certain money lender. One owed him 500 and the other owed him 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which do you think will love him more? Simon says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You've judged correctly. And he turns to the woman and he says this, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered does not stop kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Simon, you're goofy and you don't know it. You think you're this great picture and you don't have much need. So you're in this business of finding a constellation or a couple of stars and trying to debate propositional truths. You don't really understand what needs to happen is grace needs to come into your life. You need to be forgiven. You need to have an interaction with me that will change you. I am truth. And in that relationship, truth becomes atmospheric because you who are needy do receive forgiveness and will become more like me in this kind of a transaction. You're goofy and you don't know it, and that's a dangerous thing, Simon. You know what? I'll even show it to you. This woman was goofy. She knew it. She came in, fell at my feet. Um, she did this. She did this. She did that. You didn't catch any of those truths. You just took the surface and went after data points. Guess what? You're not going to really get it. I used to think that church, the gospel was this, 
and missiology. Missiology is the doctrine of how we go out and love the world, okay? Missiology. I used to think there were two separate things. The gospel, and then we needed to teach people how to have a right view of missiology. And I've kind of started coming to this belief that looking at whether someone has a correct view of missiology is actually the fruit that will tell you whether they get the gospel. Instead of taking these two separate things and just taking a slice off the top, we, we actually start this way and say, someone's, even if it's a, a, a childlike understanding, but someone's understanding of missiology, how we interface with the world, will actually show you, be a lens to their heart as to whether they really understand the gospel or not. Because he who has been forgiven much will forgive much. And so I've started thinking about Antioch and the statistics of over the last 20 years, literally 20% of Christians have just evaporated off, off the landscape. And, and we still keep talking about our same conversations and doing our same things. And, we, and we, don't, we don't even realize that this thing called Christianity in America is just evaporating. And if we actually looked at that, it's like the people that realized there was tremors of a, an economy that was about to collapse but didn't know what to do, and then all of a sudden one day the whole thing just flips upside down. Well, as Christianity in America, we're feeling these tremors of, it ain't like it used to be. It's got to be more genuine. It's got to be a little bit more true. Um, and we're feeling these tremors, and we're not really paying attention. And guess what? It's going to flip itself upside down. So here's where I've been thinking with Antioch is, instead of being a church, we're a church, Antioch. And we, we, we do some missions on the side. It's, it's kind of hard to get people really excited or, you know, they might get excited, but it's hard to get them really do anything. So we got this word of the church and then we're always trying to figure out how to get like 10% of people to actually engage in missions. And, and I think we may have defined ourselves upside down. And I think maybe what we should do is define ourselves as a missions organization that sometimes does church. Doesn't that feel a little bit more authentic? Or genuine? What if we just said, look, this is what it means to come to Antioch. That you have to be in this right relationship that forces you to be in this kind of a position where we're really yearning for grace to sustain us as we pour it out. And we have to be tied in, otherwise it isn't going to work. And, and as this fuels us, it actually renews our compassion for other people, which I don't know about you, it's hard for me to love people because a lot of people are really stupid. And... It's like logically weird. So for me, for me, it's all grace, man. I'm not born with empathy, you know? So it's like I got to get it and then be able to give it. So, you know, but, but what if we defined Antioch here? Antioch's missions organization. That's just who we are. We're, we're called and sent to be witnesses. It's a certain kind of fruit. And we sometimes do church and potlucks. Because you know what? We need each other. We need encouragement. Man, we need... But now our potlucks aren't just one more like, oh, it's just what you do if you're a Christian in North America. I saw a little house in the prairie. Potlucks are just what we do. It's like, no, man, I do potlucks now because I'm wasted and that person's wasted and we're both giving it out in different places and we need to come together and like, I need to hear from him and they need to hear from me. And man, we need to pray for each other and love on each other. Um... I'm not saying I'm doing that, but I'm just toying with that. I don't know what you guys think, but it feels a little more authentic. 
Along those lines, uh, one of our interns last summer, Micah, came back. And he's going to be with us for a year or so and, and whatnot. And Micah is a, an amazing artist and does a lot of spoken word. And so uh, last week he wrote something on church. And church, like Christian, like the tide is rising, like Matt is a hatter, is something that we can easily cut off from what's beneath it. And he wrote this spoken word piece, and I looked at that, and I was like, man, I love it. It says what church really is. So I'm going to invite Micah to come up, and he's going to read this spoken word piece, um, and then I'm going to come back up, and we're going to close it down. Um, so Micah, if you guys would welcome Micah. Uh, This piece is just titled, Church Is. Church is not once a week. Church is not Sunday morning, 10 a.m. till, isn't it supposed to end at noon? Why is the pastor still talking? Church is not dropping your kids off in a classroom while you sit in a pew doodling cartoons over announcements you never read, prayer requests for which you never intercede, invitations you never accept, opportunities you always let pass. Church is so much more than that. Church is people, flesh and bones, fingers and toes, individuals with faith in Christ who collectively make up his bride. Church is, sure, I'll give you a ride. Church is, he's not even a Christian. You know that's not right. Church is, let's Google Obadiah and find out why he's in the Bible. Church is, sorry, bro, I know it's 2 a.m., but my wife just cussed me out and I'm about to do something ungodly. Can you pray for me? Church is, seriously, keep it. It wasn't alone. It's a gift. I know you need it. Church is believers living life side by side, asking questions, good advice, open arms, open homes, open Bibles, open tables. Church is chicken, rice, and beans. Church is hurting because you refuse to participate. The head cannot say to the feet, I do not need you. Au contraire, those parts which appear to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts we believe to be less honorable, we treat with greater honor. So please don't think you have nothing to offer. And don't dare think we have nothing to offer you. Pity on him who falls and has no one to help him up. Church is there for you. Church is who we are communally, not where we go once a week. So when you leave the auditorium Sunday at noon, do you leave the church too? Or do we walk with you? to have Micah back. Let me read you Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks to the church and says this, as we mature, as we grow, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, disconnected truth, cunning and craftiness of men, their agendas. Verse 15, instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up from him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let me read that again. From him, from Christ. When I was in college, I joined a fraternity. Like my health problems I still have today are from that three-year period. Um, 
and I looked for fraternity. I didn't find it. Became a Christian, not because I was looking for fraternity, but because I thought I was going to literally die in two years. Doctor told me that. And I began to really ask, is there a God? And I began to read and, and reasoned my way to understanding and then one day met God. But, um, but it was kind of a cool thing. So now all of a sudden I lost my whole social network. And so I went looking for fraternity again. I went looking in the Christian groups. Um, first couple months, man, I worshipped the other Christians. Like, man, these people have lived Christianity and da 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 A um, couple months in, I just realized, man, they, they just were too geeky to get into a fraternity, so they became, like, involved in these Christian groups, and, and their Christian groups was just a surrogate for, like, a fraternity, but there wasn't really anything of Christ in it. There's examples in the Bible of good churches and bad churches. I think we can look around in America and find examples of good churches and bad churches. We all, though, universally walk around with a hunger for fraternity, looking for authenticity, passionately desiring and, and craving what is genuine. I mean, don't we? I mean, we really want to belong somewhere where it's just different and it's dynamic and it just blows your mind. We all want that. We all hunger for We don't find it hardly anywhere. From Him, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up, becomes a fraternity. It grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The deeper slice of church is that as we are connected to Christ, all of us, with Him at the center, in this metaphor, Him is the head, when we're all connected there, and as we do our work, taking from here, being informed by truth, and going out in this world in love, and as everyone All of us does our work with Christ at the center. This thing knits itself together. My kids were making those friendship bracelets this summer on vacation, you know, with the little plastic things that go forward. And you pull them all tight, and it looks really cool. You don't pull it tight. It's like all loose and awkward, you know. It will be pulled tight and be right. It'll be fraternity as we are connected to Christ at a deeper level. And then as we are informed by that and work itself out at this practical level. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to introduce our time. Uh, we only have time for special music, which is taking our offering. I'm going to do something to intro special music I haven't done before. I'm just going to list ways you can be involved in this fraternity, this body with Christ as the head. Um, this is not an exhaustive list, but everybody should have a ministry in the, world, in the church and a mission in the world. I honestly believe that. If we're going to be vitally connected to this thing and we're all doing our part, we're going to have a ministry in the church and we're going to have a mission in the world. So here's a couple things and then I'll kick it over to offering. For Sunday mornings, if you like to affirm people, man, we need good greeters. Nothing's worse than coming into a church when someone's trying to shake your hand with a scowl. Um, if you're good at assisting people, you're extroverted, we fill these seats. There's no center aisle. We need people that are actually actively involved in helping other people find their seats. There's a lot of families. You know how hard it is to find five seats in a row? Um, we need ushers. If you like to serve, um, money is really tight at the church, which means our food table is looking really sparse on Sunday mornings. 
If you like to bake, if you like to cook, if you like hospitality, we really could use you serving. If you like to protect, um, there's a lot of creepy people out there, and we have a security team here for that reason, and we want to protect our kids. And if, if you're a protector, we'd love you to join that security team. Linda has the, kid, the world's greatest kids ministry going on here, honestly does. She wants dads to do the setup so that the moms can come in and actually focus on kids. It means you, you can still be in here, dads. It means you don't even have to work with kids, dads. All you got to do is get here at 8.15 and set up. Um, do it with your middle school son. Use it as discipleship. But she needs a whole team of dads that are just willing to set up once a month. Um, she needs people that will lock in to visit her kids because visitor kids are terrified of churches. Um, and she just wants a whole team of people that they come on Sunday mornings and their whole role is dialing into that visitor kid and making that, feel, that kid feel loved. I mean, isn't that cool? If you have a heart for that, maybe you could do that. Uh, Linda actually needs a seamstress. So you might be sitting there going, man, I don't know how to sew. I mean, I don't know how to do anything with my sewing. Uh, she actually needs a seamstress. She needs someone that will shop during the week for kids' ministry. All you got to do is, while you're shopping, shop for kids' ministry. How easy is that? You think, man, I got kids. I, I don't have the time to help. Um, just shop. Uh, and then she needs somebody that really will be sacrificial enough just to be the floater every week to make sure that we have someone to cover the holes as they open up. If you are someone that takes initiative, start a small group. If you literally can get your own small group started, like we can't fill it for you. You got to go find people here and fill your small group, especially if you're from Prineville or Sisters or Sun River. We have people that drive in from those places and we just, we need some small groups out there. So if you're somebody that knows how to take initiative and you're an extrovert, man, we need you to do a small group. If you're creative, start a ministry. If you're a leader, um, come talk to me. We are desperately in need of high-capacity leaders. Um, I'll give you a coffee. Um, if you'd like to learn, sign up for Kiln's class. Um, we don't want to be consumers. We want to be contributors at church. I still think, uh, lastly, the most authentic thing we can do as a church, a lot of you did it last week, but I still think the most authentic thing is that you grab somebody before you all leave and you make lunch plans or dinner plans and we are eating together and getting into each other's lives. Um, anything you want to help with, anything you have questions about, anything you have prayer requests about, if you put it on that connection card when that offering bucket comes along, just put it in that offering bucket. Um, let's be church. Amen.